Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, if you don't know who, who I am, my name's Ian. Uh, I'm usually at the 502 site, but it's great to be with you here at Alder Roads. Today, we are continuing in our one-way Five Signposts to the Truth series. And we're working through five solas. Solas are, al these are alone statements about the Protestant Reformation, which took place during the 16th century, which uh, was this incredible theological revolution, which had huge implications, not just on theology, uh, but on history. It had uh, huge implications on education, ethics, politics, economics. In fact, the, our Western civilization as we know it would be dramatically different without the Reformation. But let's be honest, some of you have heard theology and history in the same sentence, and you're thinking, oh, yawn, can we not talk about something more exciting? This incredible piece of history shouldn't make us yawn if we grasp what it's all about. It is a courtroom drama, a real-life courtroom drama where we are on the dock and there is a way in which we leave that place, leave that courtroom justified, justified by faith alone. Now, courtrooms uh, are some of the uh, most captivating uh, types of drama, aren't they? Uh, maybe you have uh, seen the film A Few Good Men when Colonel Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, he eventually cracks under interrogation. You can't handle the truth. And, um, or maybe for you, it's uh, more of a classic, how to uh, kill a mockingbird. Um, and uh, the great uh, speech, all men are created equal. But although these get our hearts racing, what is at the heart of the Reformation, this incredible a uh, picture of the law court and us being at the heart of it and right there where we go in and it's gloomy and it's winter and we are chained up and we are taken to the dock and we, we stand there thinking this, this cannot go well. I'm dirty, I'm mucky, I am full of a burden of life's expectation upon me. This cannot go well at all for me. But then suddenly there is this dramatic intervention and we leave the courtroom into spring and into new life and our chains are gone our burdens are gone we are free and that's what this is all about and this is a dramatic court case that we need to get our our we need to get our grasp on we need to know this it's so important these five alone statements clarify how the reformers um, worked out how it is from the Bible that we are acceptable before God. And if you were to take all of these alone statements together, it would say something like this. We are justified by grace alone because of the blood and sacrifices of Christ alone through the instrument or gateway of faith alone and for the glory of God alone as revealed in Scripture alone. This is about our justification, our right standing 
before God, being acquitted of our sin, having our sin dealt with. So this morning, we're looking at faith alone. Uh, If you have a Bible, do turn with me. We're going to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to look at four different types of people from Luke 18. We're looking at verse 9 all the way through to 30. Luke 18. And we're going to see four different types of people that Jesus helps, uh, uses to help us reveal uh, what it looks like to be justified. So we're going to look at a Pharisee, a rich ruler, a tax collector, and some babies. The Pharisee and the rich ruler, they're going to help us to see the weakness of works in the courtroom. And the tax collector and uh, the babies are going to show us the strength of surrender in the courtroom. So let me read uh, from Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much as this in this age 
and in the age to come and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for sola scriptura, that uh, we have sufficient uh, evidence for your glory, your goodness, your justification, for us to be clean, uh, regarded as holy before you because of what is revealed in your scriptures. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would reveal your truth, that our hearts would be open to what your word has to say to us, that, God, you would help us to see uh, one of the foundational truths of the world, the one that will help us to know that it is not about us and our works, but it's about Jesus and his righteousness given to us as a gift. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So Luke tells, uh, some, uh, tells us that some in the crowd are confident in their own righteousness. They thought, it's not going to be a problem. If I come before the judge, I'll be fine. I've proven myself to be a good person. And so Jesus tells a parable, and he portrays the Pharisee as this ultimate self-righteous uh, who, person who just loves to compare himself to other people. Not, not like these other people, not like the underbelly of society, not, not like the people that, that thieved and were troublemakers and cheats, especially not like that tax collector. Tax collectors worked for uh, the Roman Empire. Rome was uh, the, the thing that Israelites at the time hated the most because these people occupied them. And a tax collector was the person who would go around collecting taxes, obviously. And when they did, they were collecting for Rome and they were taking a huge amount of money away from Israelites. And then they were keeping, pocketing some of it for themselves. So not only were they seen as a traitor against Israel, uh, working for this occupying force, but they were seen to be people who would keep some money back for themselves. So a tax collector was, in, in those days, seen as scum. They were the worst of the worst. And this Pharisee felt that he was far superior in the Talmud, which is Jewish uh, teachings and interpretations of the Old Testament, there's this extraordinary prayer that kind of sums up this pharisaical attitude. It says this, I give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast set my portion with those who in the Betha Midrash, a house of learning, and thou hast not set my portion with those who sit on street corners. For I rise early, and they rise early, but I rise for the words of the Torah, and they rise for the frivolous talk. I labor, and they labor, but I labor, and I receive a reward. And they labor, and do not receive a reward. I run and run, but I run to the life of the future, and they run to the pit of destruction. That was the kind of attitude that Pharisees had, and so the self-righteous in the crowd we're being picked out here. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll have heard about this extraordinary man, Martin Luther. He uh, was from Germany. Um, he was a, a, an intelligent man from an educated family, and he was going off to study law. But as he was out on his horse one day, 
There was a great storm, and a lightning, a lightning bolt struck him off his horse, and he was so afraid that he would die that he called out in anguish. But he didn't call out to God for help. Because God to him was this object uh, who condemned him, this judge, this person who would judge him, condemn him, but wasn't a friend, wasn't somebody to call out to for help. So instead he called out to a saint. He calls out, Saint Anne, help me. I will become a monk. And so he went uh, and became an Augustinian monk. And he was diligent at keeping the law because he was so scared that if he didn't keep all the sacraments, then he may find himself in a position where he dies and he comes before God and he's not got enough righteousness to be counted as worthy to go into heaven. And the issue here was Catholic theology. Catholic theology said that it's not enough for faith to get you into heaven to have a relationship with God. It was faith plus works, plus the sacraments. And so he had this paranoid nature about him as a monk. He was desperate. And he said to his superior, uh, or his superior said this of him one day, because he went to confession so often, so paranoid that he'd miss a sin that he hadn't confessed. And his superior said this, look here, Brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or your father. Go Go commit adultery. Stop coming in here with such flummery and fake sins. Like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, Luther grew this reputation of religious discipline. But the difference between Luther and the Pharisee is that unlike the Pharisee, he's not confident of his own righteousness. And he'd be right. Uh, Luther suffered as a monk. He was burdened by this seemingly cruel God who just watched him fail and try and fail and try and fail and try and try harder and then fail again. And afterwards, he described it like this. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was, pl- he, uh, was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. The idea of working out your own righteousness robs people of joy. It robs people of the joy of knowing that Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the Catholic teaching and actually all other mainline religion and most philosophies doesn't say that we should look for the answers outside of ourselves. It says that we should look for the answers inside of ourselves, that we, our effort should be enough to justify us. But the reality is we cannot do it. We can never reach that bar. Ah, if only there was a way in which Luther could be declared not guilty outside of his own efforts. It was his honest assessment of himself, though, of this 
unrighteousness that he was so acutely aware of that led him to this place where he realized that the Bible actually says that we can be justified apart from the law and that we can be justified by faith alone. Romans 3, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The Pharisee was not living up to the standards of the law, was he? But he was blind to it. Luther at least saw that he wasn't living up to the standards of the law. Both reveal the weakness of trying to work out your own salvation. Of trying to work to be saved. Now you might be thinking, I'm not religious, but I still think I'm going to be okay. I still think I'm going to come before God and, and, and I'll be all right. I'm a decent, hardworking person. Um, God's fair. He'll give me the thumbs up. I'm sure of it. Be fine. Totally fine. Well, let's have a look uh, at this next character then. Because I think he's going to help us see that that's just not the case. This rich ruler. Uh, he calls Jesus good teacher in verse 18. And now that seems innocent, but actually that's really just blase talk. Because uh, to call uh, Jesus good teacher was blasphemous. Now, we know it wasn't blasphemous because Jesus is the son of God. He was God. But that wasn't why he was saying it. He was saying it because he was just throwing out some flattery to him. It was thoughtless. Jesus responds, no one is good but God alone. Not only did it expose his blasé approach, Jesus calls him out here. He challenges him. He says, well, no one is good, not even you. You're not counted as good right now. He, he says, look, your position before God is not good. It would have rung uh, back to these songs that he would have sung as a child. Songs like this in the Psalms. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then Jesus challenges him with the law, this time echoing words like Psalm 130. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? He even lists a few commandments, but the rich ruler is so confident in himself, so confident in his own righteousness. He comes back with a, another blase answer. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I've, I've obeyed all of that. I'm fine. Don't worry, Jesus, it's cool. People around me think I'm great. When I compare myself to, to others, I think I'm doing all right. That's my standard, that's the bar, that's where I set it. But there's a huge problem here. He's not realized that there is a great difference between the standard the world sets and the standard that God sets. In religious first century Israel, this was the middle class and successful type. He was meeting the standard. I'm fine on my own. I don't need God. I was at John Lewis yesterday. And honestly, looking around, I don't think we're short of people like that in our society here in Prince. We are setting the bar by comparison, by looking at people around us and going, I'm fine. I'll be all right. That flattery of ourselves, 
will get us nowhere. And even when we don't meet that bar, what do we do? What's our reaction? Our reaction isn't, oh, um, yeah, maybe I need to, to realize that I need to turn to God. Our reaction is, no, I'm going to work even harder. I've failed, but I'm going to work even harder to see if I can reach that bar, which seems attainable to me. And it may well be, but it may not be. But here's the thing. It's the wrong bar. That's why uh, Jesus in verse 14 says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's very easy to be arrogant and overconfident in ourselves when we're continually comparing ourselves to everyone around us. We need to compare ourselves to God's holiness. And that is where the problem arises. Let's move on to the tax collector. In contrast to the Pharisee and the rich ruler's weak works, Jesus shows surprising strength is available to the tax collector and these little children, these babies. Why? Because they simply are willing to surrender. As Jesus begins to tell the story and names the characters, tax collector, Pharisee. You can imagine this self-righteous crowd kind of looking around at each other and thinking, mm-hmm, tax collector's in trouble. <laughs> Can't wait for this one. Woo-hoo. This was, a, this was a, a, a nice crowd out for a day out, hoping that they would listen to some interesting teacher from out of town and that this teacher would affirm their lifestyle. But the Bible doesn't do that. So even if today you hear me say things that you don't particularly appreciate, that's okay. Because the Bible calls us out for who we really are and then offers us a solution by his love and grace. Jesus turns everything upside down in Jerusalem's self-righteous society. The tax collector doesn't stand proudly among the others. Instead, he he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, the word mercy here means to propitiate. You might have heard that word before, propitiation. It's a biblical word. It means find a way, Lord, to, to turn the judgment that I deserve aside. I know I deserve judgment, but in faith, Lord, have mercy on me. Find a way that in that courtroom I could be acquitted for the sin that I have committed against you. He didn't dare look up. He had nothing to offer. Only his cry for help. He comes empty-handed. The self-righteous come with all sorts of gifts laden up, thinking that they're sorted, thinking that what they've got to offer is just wonderful. This guy gets it. He realizes he's got nothing, and he's empty-handed. Educated, middle-class, and religious uh, Israelites here would have been deeply offended. And Jesus scandalously says that the one who will go home justified the tax collector. 
And it's all because he's willing to surrender to Jesus, surrender to God. The babies. As he was speaking, people start bringing babies to him. And they're asking Jesus to bless them. That's what it means by laying hands on. The disciples thought, Jesus, he's not going to appreciate this. I mean, he's not got time for this. So they start shooing them away. But Jesus says, no, wait. Bring them back to me. He starts praying for them. And then what else does he do? He says, actually, all of us need to become like these, like these babies. All of us need to depend on God for everything. Uh, we've had a bit of a baby boom here at the church. And um, most recent, I think, was uh, Zechariah Jablonski last week. Uh, Zechariah would have been born a beautiful, squidgy, messy little baby, uh, unable to do anything really other than cry out. And yet, one day, he will become an adult, believe it or not. Annabelle, our seven-month-old, is now uh, learning how to eat. She's learning how to drink. She's uh, trying pathetically to crawl, face-planting, and then face-planting. And um, not long from now, Zechariah will be the same. And, And shockingly, one day, Zechariah will be Susie Hosier's age. He turned 18 on Friday. And uh, this year is in her final year of school. And next year, we'll look to leave the family home and, and go on out into this world on her own. And somehow, that just kind of, it just kind of happens, doesn't it? But he, he's saying, Jesus is saying here that although we're going to become adults and we're supposed to be self-sufficient as adults away from our parents. We are not to be self-sufficient away from God. We are to remain like babies, remain wholly dependent upon God for everything. Every breath is his. Jesus says, if you want to get this, if you want to understand this, it's not about working your way to righteousness. It's about depending wholly upon him. Don't look inside, look outside. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, burst onto the scene with the publication of the Christian Institutes in 1536. He said, the secret of happiness is that it is necessary for us to go outside of ourselves to find happiness. In other words, if we continually keep looking to ourselves for satisfaction and joy, we will never find it. But if we look to Jesus and his righteousness, we will. Come as you are, empty-handed, and receive. Confess your sins and receive Jesus' righteousness. No proving yourself, just lay yourself down. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. We go to God with just our sin, nothing. And we cry out for mercy in faith. And Jesus, who went to the cross and bore the punishment that we deserve for our sin, gifts us with his righteousness. The only way to happiness, the only way to joy, the only way to glory, the only way to eternal life is to know that you can't do it. 
but Jesus has done it. He has done it. If you put your faith in Jesus, the law has been satisfied to declare you innocent. You are free. He's taken the punishment of your sin upon himself. And you are declared righteous. Blaise Pascal was a mathematical genius. If you hated calculus, you can blame him. At 31 years old, while the Reformation still burned brightly across Europe, Pascal realized that, that actually he uh, could know Jesus. And when he, when he gave himself to Jesus and trusted in Jesus, he had this incredible uh, experience of what it meant to no longer have to rely on his own efforts, but to rely on God alone. And he said this, year of grace. He wrote this down, and later... It was found in a parchment inside his jacket after he died eight years later. He said this, Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, Feast of Clement. From about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. It's up for debate whether or not mass might be boring. But theology, true theology, theology that releases us to know Jesus is not boring. It's wonderful. The Reformation was a beautiful thing. Reformation history is not boring. Without, without it, we wouldn't know the way to glory and joy. Without it, we'd be stuck in winter's gloom, mucky and chained up. Justification by faith alone releases us into new life for the rest of eternity. You don't have to do anything else. Jesus has done it all for you. Just put your faith in him. Now, Jesus' final response to the rich young ruler kind of fleshes out what this faith looks like. And one thing we just have to be really clear with here is that this faith is not a, a car insurance type of faith. My car insurance is up this, this week, so uh, I'll probably go on to some sort of comparison website. Uh, I'll stick in my details. It'll tell me the cheapest. I'll probably pick that. Um, and then I'll forget about it until either I crash or next year, all right? Our faith, this gift, is not like that. It's the way that Blaise Pascal describes it. It's this beautiful gateway into a relationship with God. It's an incredible uh, promise that we can run into his presence no matter what, no matter how we're performing. Didn't have a quiet time this morning. Run into his presence. If you haven't read your Bible for a week, run into his presence. It's there, it's available for you now. Because it's nothing to do with you. And it's all to do with his love and righteousness and grace which has been poured out on you. It's yours, it's yours alone. 
You can have it, no matter what. At 5.02 in about an hour, we're going to baptize someone, a lady called Janet. She's making a public declaration of this very thing. She's saying, I'm putting my faith in Jesus alone, in his, on his righteousness and blood alone, and nothing to do with me. And when I go down into the water, I die to my old self. I'm buried to my old self. And then I raise up. That's, that's winter down there, by the way. Remember we said we go into the courtrooms of God in the gloom of winter. Well, she's going to come up. She's already done this by her declaration of faith. But when she comes up, what's going to happen is there's going to be this glorious symbolism of her coming up to new life. Jesus, resurrection life. This glorious, wonderful life where we can know him forever. That's what baptism is. The gospel is, is wonderful. And the reformers, they, they just got back to basics. People had been duped. People had been told they had to carry this burden that wasn't theirs to carry. That they couldn't carry. That no one could carry except Jesus. And he's carried it for us. Have you surrendered to Jesus? Or are you still fighting that, that old battle that isn't yours to fight? Have you even given your faith to Jesus, your, your whole life to Jesus? But actually, you, a, on a daily basis, you often don't believe it for yourself. You think, oh, I can't be close with God today because I've not done this or because I did this. No. Know the gospel deep in your heart. This free gift of faith. This wonderful love that is yours now. We leave the courtrooms into spring, not on our own, but with Jesus alongside us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, sometime not in the future, we can leap into his glorious presence. Why don't we stand together? And I'm just going to read some words that the band are about to come and play for us. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Lord, we bear it no more because you are so good. Jesus, we rely on your goodness, your righteousness, your blood alone. You have paid the price and we thank you so much. And Lord, we pray that as we respond now in worship, we would, we would get a, an even greater glimpse of what it means to say that we bear it no more. We love you, Jesus. We love you, God. It's you and you alone, your glory alone. We love you. Amen.